Good evening everybody, uh, welcome to the LSE and uh, welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy Dialogue. Um, I'm Simon Glendening and I'm the Director of the Forum and I'm delighted to welcome here tonight David Goldblatt who's going to talk with me about various themes arising from the Olympics. Uh, David's a, an academic, a journalist, a broadcaster and an author. Uh, some may remember him from open university programmes on a Saturday morning when he utterly subverted the Kipatai stereotype of the OU presenters. And uh, today, marking the publication of his new book, co-written with Johnny Acton, How to Watch the Olympics, wonderfully brisk read, telling you about all the events that will be taking place. Marking that, David's agreed to submit himself to questions from me, and he doesn't know what they are. So he, he, for him, this is a live event. Um, for me, there's a bit of pre-planning going on. Um, and I'm going to start by picking out uh, three of your own books, either all of your own or that you've done with others. Um, I'm just going to give the title so you get some indication of something of David's interests. First book, Global Transformations, Politics, Economics, Culture. The Ball is Round, A Global History of Football, and How to Watch the Olympics, where the first line says, for two and a half weeks every fourth summer, the planet reliably goes sports crazy. So there seems to be a little common thread in, in there. Um, I, I know that you have a, a fascination and and sort of uh, practical interest, one could say, with the local and the particular. But um, it seems to me that everywhere in your work, both in journalism and your more academic writings, there's a sort of global horizon. And uh, so I want to start with that and to ask you just sort of straight off, what do you understand by globalisation? <laughs> what I understand by globalisation oh well you know stretching, widening and deepening of social relationships, networks and institutions you know we can have an endlessly tedious debate about is it regional or interregional or global has it got to be the whole world or just a large part of it I mean I sort of remember all of those debates when I was writing about it and slightly felt it was sort of like some Augustine arguing about angels on pinheads. So I'm not going to go down any of those routes. I kind of think it's a bit like pornography, isn't it? I can't quite pin it down, but I sure as hell know what it is when I see it. Um, is it a globalisation of something? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's things that only really come into existence sort of at a globe, like when it's a global thing in the first place. I mean, right. some things start off, you know, somewhere, don't they, sort of tangibly or physically, you know, like a sport. Uh, you know, the rules of football, for example, and I think, you know, we can describe the process by which that is diffused across the world to be globalisation, but the idea of a global culture, a global football culture and global football institutions, I mean, that's kind of, FIFA didn't diffuse or right. emanate from yeah. somewhere. I mean, it was kind of created in the midst of a process of globalisation. So you can sort of have both things, I think. Okay, well, I mean... Let me just say something about what I've thought about this, and you can tell, because it is about a, a certain kind of diffusion, and I think it puts a, a turn on what one might understand by globalisation, which 
um, I find both a kind of like it's a, a chance for something, but also a bit of a problem. Um, in the book that you wrote with others on global transformations, which really was a study of globalization, mm -hmm. um, I think the some French economists in the late 1960s were cited as the, the first sort of thinkers of globalization as you were exploring it. Um, but I, I was really delighted to find an earlier one, uh, which was from 1965. So already in 1965, we had a, it was a French philosopher, Jacques Derrida, uh, wrote an essay in a journal called Critique and repeated the remark two years later in a book called Of Grammatology, where he was talking about the way Europeans understand themselves. And um, there had been this long tradition of thinking about what was distinctive about Europeans in terms of its writing, the civilization of writing, what was called the civilization of writing. So you had this particular culture, this European culture, Western culture, giving itself a, a privileged position amongst all other human cu regional cultures. Uh, and it was a, uh, a privilege which was characterized by a distinctive understanding of the world, not the globe, but the world, mm -hmm. or the human world, and the significance of human lives. And in the text, Derrida had said uh, about this civilization that it's in the process of disappearing in its very globalization. So, as it were, it moves from this particular European culture to becoming worldwide. And in fact, of course, the word he used was not globalization, but mondialisation, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, uh, which he, he, Derrida would often say this is like a worldwideization rather than a globalization, a spreading out of a world. And so it's like a sort of becoming European mm -hmm. of, uh, of the world or, or of the, our understanding of the world and the significance of our lives, spreading out over 2,000 years, in fact. And I just wonder uh, how far you would go along in thinking that the things that you've thought about in terms of global sport and global football, you've just said, you know, it sort of emerges on the back of a globalisation, not emanating, as it were, but how much of it really does, in fact, emanate out of a European context? Well, I mean, are we counting, you know, European civilization in inverted well, commas in the well, United States? I, I, th yes, certainly though, there's that's a one European continent, but then there's, there's also Latin, a sense... Latin America count as European? Well, it's a colony. So you've got the idea of... Uh, Full of folks in non-European descent. I mean, I... Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, global sports are generally, you know, in the last 150 years have been codified, institutionalised and run by white European males. Uh, so, you know, that's certainly true. I mean, I think what's kind of interesting about football in particular amongst global sports is that Europe for a long time has seriously been from the very, you know, really from the very beginning, albeit European peoples on another continent, has been challenged. Mm. You know, so Argentina is playing football, um, you know, long before most of Europe is playing football. I mean, you know, there's there's a copy of the rules and there are recorded games in Argentina in the late eighteen seventies when only really the Danes and the Swedes have gone on to it, you know, in, in Russia or, yeah. you know, frankly in Germany, right? In the heart of conventional notions of Europe, it's not being played at all. Well, if in terms of what, what were you talking about there, the codification of the games, yeah. uh, 
uh, is that even a more restricted area, really, towards Britain? How far is Britain responsible for that kind of codification? Well, you know, for probably, I mean, of the games at the Olympics, for example, probably about half, maybe just under. Quite a lot of them emerge in um, German-speaking cultures. You know, Switzerland, the wider kind of Germany, so sort of shooting, for example, um, would fall into, you know, it's in the end as a sport, I mean, people shoot guns all over, but right. actually codified as a, a, as a kind of sport, German, you know, to the German-speaking world. The Danes uh, do handball, the Americans um, are responsible for basketball, volleyball, um, oh, what else do they get in the Olympics? That's pretty much it, I mean, sort of synchronised swimming in a way. It's really sort of their invention, I suppose, as well. So, yeah, it's the only ones that are non-European in their origin are judo um, and taekwondo. Oh, that's two. That's two. Judo came in in 64. And, but, of course, because, you know, the, the you know European nations kind of, you know, uh, are organising and playing organised sport, you know, 30, 40, 50 years before everybody else. And so, in terms of globalisation of sport, would... Do you, do you, I mean, how seriously would you take the thesis, as it were, that, um, that it does in fact have a kind of European origin? It was very interesting to me to see that the Olympic anthem addresses the immortal spirit of antiquity. But that's of course not just any antiquity, that's Greek antiquity. Oh, sure. and, and there's nothing more European than the idea of a Greek origin. Sure. So, uh, you know, how, for you, if thinking about both globalisation and codification. Yeah, sports, yeah, overwhelmingly sports are, you know, European and they're the first to industrialise and the first to have mass publics playing sport. Right. And there's a whole series of sort of social preconditions, I think, that have yeah. to emerge before you get to the point of codification. And, you know, that, that those those conditions are reached in, um, in Western Europe because, you know, Eastern Europe doesn't... There are no Eastern European sports that have been codified. I mean, and how many did Spain get? You know, none. I mean, France and Italy can lay claim in part to fencing uh, and bits of equestrianism, um, but actually, it's an incredibly, you know, small, small number, and it's um, sort of slightly Betamax VHS, isn't it? It's like once there's a few sports out, there's only so much room for so many sort of mm -hmm. codified sports, I suspect, in the kind of <laughs> sports space of any society, mm. and. Um, you know, once these things have been established, it's quite hard for competitors to come out of other cultures. You know, because there are lots of, I mean, the Chinese, you know, have claimed with the help of Seth Blatter that they invented football. All right, so you'll hear that argument quite often. And that's based on a reading that says, you know, yeah, the game that was being played inside the Chinese army in the kind of, you know, first sort of couple of centuries of the Christian millennium is the game that actually provides, you know, is, is the game that we play today. And of course this is nonsense because people stopped playing Kuju pretty much for 300 years before association football is codified. There's absolutely no connection between them at all. Um, but if China or Japan had industrialised quicker, faster, in advance yeah. of, um, of the West, then it's quite possible, you know, that actually the kicking game that got codified would be a version of Kuju or Kamari or one of the, one of those one of those games. Right, but it's right. sort of so, who so gets to who gets to sort of industrialisation first partly determines that. That that, that idea of um, industrial modernity 
for or uh, the, the modern world of, of Europe it was is absolutely connected in the minds of those Europeans at that time to that idea of civilization, which Derrida's citing as a sort of conceived as a civilization of writing, where the Europeans were the first to have a written script which was a genuine representation of speech instead of some ideographic mm -hmm. formation. So you have this civilization of writing. Uh, Europe, uh, European industrialization, modernity, and so on. That's the time in which they told themselves this story of this antique heritage, which, mm -hmm. which runs up immortally, as it were, into their time. But one of the things you're saying there is that there's a kind of massive historical contingency in, in the fact that the globalization of sport has had a European origin, rather than they, I mean, they'd like to say, no, it's destined, you know. No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, and not only <coughs> peculiarly British as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, as we say, you know, thinking of the sports at the Olympics, I mean, water polo, swimming, most of athletics, uh, football, uh, badminton, tennis, table tennis. I mean, you know, there are more. Uh, I think weightlifting is codified in Britain. I mean, it's at least half, you know, mm. and that's that was never destined. <laughs> I mean, that's such a kind of insane right. idea. So that how, that how, how I think that's great because I, mean, I think that old discourse of Europe's modernity, of it being sort of this breakthrough place for the whole of humanity, and it globalizes out of that, is is it a profoundly complicated kind of self. I mean, uh, not just complicated. Um, Problematic kind of self-understanding, but do you have a, what I'm sort of always impressed by in your work is the sort of relentless move towards a more global context. Even when, as it were, you might say, yes, Britain was the first ones to codify this, but you always want to look beyond. Does the global horizon come into your your understanding as a kind of counter narrative to those kinds of Eurocentric? Version. So when you're telling the history of football, are you consciously trying to take up a different sort of way of narrating? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's one of the great joys of writing The Ball is Round, is that, you know, America is a transatlantic curiosity in a global history rather than occupying sort of a third of the book. Mm. Um, and Africa, which is, you know, usually allotted sort of 5% of the space, and then it's, you know, relentless misery. Um, is a place of kind of invention and resistance and liberation and invention and success and you know so yeah that was very much um, I like the way it kind of turns over the kind of normal order and similarly yeah. with Latin America I mean you know most global histories and certainly most global histories of you know the last two or three centuries I mean yeah the Bolivarian revolutions will get you know three pages and then we'll have a bit of, you know, failed development in the uh, 20th century. And that's sort of what you'll get. And in the ball is round, you know, they're getting pretty much as much as Europe. Um, so just in sort of sheer sort of volume and presence. And clearly, I mean, definitely with Latin America and football, I mean, it's harder. Well, we can debate this with other sports, but they have placed their imprint on it as a kind of game, as a way of playing, as in our imaginations about what football is and might be and yeah. should be, it's, you know... And do you think that's true of a lot of Olympic sports as well, even if they had that kind of codifying origin in Europe mm. and particularly in Britain? Yes, it the... depends on the sport. I mean, obviously, Japan, you know, judo and taekwondo have their kind of 
you know, Japanese, I mean, obviously, you know, they were kind of Japanese and Korean nationalist projects at various points. So there's obviously that. Um, to what extent has sort of the rest of the world kind of culturally taken over and transformed the meaning of other sports? I mean, I think table tennis clearly, you know, mm. which is, um, you know, for much of its sort of early era is, you know, is very much, it's a game played by, you know, Jewish grammar school boys in kind of Manchester. I mean, you know, I think that's, you know, it's youth clubs in, in Streatham in the 1920s. And, you know, now it's, you know, the Far East, China and Japan. They've transformed the meaning of yeah. what it is, how it's played, how it looks, the equipment that's used, etc. I mean, I think badminton's the same. I mean, badminton is a completely hysterical sport in its kind of early period. It's the only sport that had its international HQ in South End. No, sorry, South Sea. South, South Sea, which is even less glamorous than South End. Um, and now it is, you know, unquestionably, it's Chinese game. You know, Why I was mean, it maybe, called Battledore and Shuttlecock or whatever it was called? Well, because Battledore and Shuttlecock, I mean, those are sort of medieval kind of keepy-uppy oh, versions. Right, right. I mean, all, yeah. all civilizations that I have looked into pretty much have worked out that if you put some kind of feather thing on some kind of baldy thing, you get a really interesting trajectory in flight. <laughs> and so, you know, you're in uh, your ancient Mayans are using dried corn husks with sort of bird feathers coming off the top and maybe like a little coin on the bottom and it sort of moves pretty much mm. you know like a shuttlecock you know with fast acceleration and then sudden deceleration and a bit of float to it and that's something you know the Chinese had their versions rattan balls are used in um, various parts of Southeast Asia most of those games end up as keepy uppy and the medieval kind of you know courtly version of that in Europe is Battledore but that is not the predecessor uh -huh. of badminton I mean the people who codified badminton um, in the late 19th century are overwhelmingly officers of the British Raj right. who encounter a variety of indigenous Indian shuttlecock games um, some of which are keepy uppy, some of which I think they get the idea of the net from India. And there's like five or six in India, in actual fact, and they play, you know, different versions in different parts of the country. And it's an amalgam of those things and those European traditions that then get codified as badminton. So, you know, what is actually originally a kind of a sort of Franco, Franco-Norman medieval dash Indian game, if it has those roots, is now via the English South Sea coast, predominantly a Chinese guy. So let's think then, if you look at it as it were in reality, you may have a, an industrialised European origin for the codification of a lot of the sports, a great, a great majority of the sports yeah. that played in the Olympics. And you could tell that, you could want, you could try to tell that as a, a, a sort of a globalising narrative out of a Greek origin and so on. But if you look at, at the sports, that sort of Greek origin begins to fall away quite a lot, and you get a, a much wider picture of of, sure. of, of a more global environment. The Greeks environment. don't like balls, right? The Greeks don't really play ball games. Okay, I mean, but the just ball games that they do play, yeah. it's you know, you muck about in the gym, you know, playing, but it's not serious competition. There's no ball game at the ancient Olympics. So there's a great sort of politi social political symbolisation within the Olympics when it refers itself back to the Olympic. Oh, sure, of thing. course. So if we just, um, as it were, bear with them for a minute on that, can you tell us a little bit about those Greek games? The Greek games? Um, well, 
I mean, we actually, you know, what do we really know about the Greek games? And one of the things of checking out a little bit of archaeology and speaking to the people who really do that stuff is incredibly little is known. Mm. And incredibly little, despite, you know, nearly a thousand years of operation, very little is written from, down. From when to when were they? 700 BC to sort of 300-ish AD, and eventually right. Christian Rome decides it's all too pagan and shut the operation down. And of course there was only, the Olympics was one of only four kind of ritual festival sporting games. There are kind of, there's one in Delphi and there are others. So, you know, it's only in retrospect and it's partly because Olympia gets dug up by German archeologists who, you know, give it, oh, wow, you know, they <laughs> discover it in the 18th century. So that gives it, you know, uh, a bit of a, 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 perhaps more significance than it might otherwise be allotted. Yeah. What do we know? I mean, for most of like the first couple of hundred years of it, there's only sort of two or three events anyway, and there's running, you know, <laughs> naked or in armour, um, and then there's a certain amount of boxing and wrestling, the rules of which are not entirely clear. Um, eventually what is called the pentathlon arrives, but it's not like our pentathlon. And nobody has the faintest idea how it's scored. You know, I mean, you know, I don't know if you know modern pentathlon, these those incredibly complicated scoring systems where, you know, depending on how many seconds you take over each event and it's all right. total. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, no one's got a clue. No one really knows quite what it, you know, quite what it looked like. We know there was quite a lot of eating, you know, but we don't even really know if there was a sacred flame. I mean, mm. the Greeks like sacred flame, so <laughs> there was probably some sacred flame somewhere, but whether it had the kind of sort of symbolic significance that it's allotted in the modern version, you know, the modern recreation. Did they any have sacrifices as well? Well, you know, in the sense that, you know, you've got to eat, so a lot of bulls get, I mean, sacrificed apparently to Zeus, and right. then everybody feasts. But we, did, we didn't carry that one on. Well, you know, it is meant to be, I was listening on the radio, it's meant to be the greatest catering <laughs> operation in peacetime Europe. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I did think it was funny when it, it said that McDonald's was supplying the, uh, the young people to walk out hand in hand in the Euro. <laughs> what, an awful, what an awful thought. <laughs> so, um, so the Olymp what, what, how many sports were there in an Olympic game in Greece? I mean, like I say, sort of like four. Four. Not very many. There was eventually, they got into chariot racing as well. There was a certain amount of chariot racing later on. And there are kind of quite a lot of games where who knows what went on. Yeah. I mean, we just, you know, they weren't publishing, you know, the idea, you know, that you would have an Olympics without a program or an official guide or such. <laughs> like, it's like, it's not what, no one's doing that in ancient Greece. When, when the Europeans, as it were, tell their story of their civilization, they often like to talk about the unbroken golden thread back to antiquity. But with the Olympics, it's a very broken thread, it's right? It's totally <laughs> broken thread. I mean, everything is over in about 300 to 400 AD. I forget the exact date. And then, you know, once the Germans dig up Olympia in the 18th century and the French start kind of nosing around, you know, you get in Scandinavia, in Germany, and in Britain, various kind of, you know, sport-loving, early, early sort of sport-loving kind of, you know, but antiquity fans who put two and two together and go, let's do this all over again. And so much Wenlock is just one of a whole series of kind of, you know, attempts to, you know, grab the name and invent something around that. So in between, when, when do you 
sort of mark the date of the modern games. 1896, there's no right. doubt there's about nothing, it. But I mean, there's no sort of something going on that's sort of leading up to this? Well, much. there's the Greek Zappas games, but I mean, these are kind of, those are best thought of as historical recreations. They're closest to the kind of sporting version of the sealed knot, recreating civil war competitions right. rather than actually, you know, so you've got a bunch of Athenian students, you know, recreating the spring, but because it's, you know, Victorian Greece and nobody can cope with the fact that people ran naked, they're all wearing flesh-coloured tights to run up and down. <laughs> right, so you know, most... So this is, this is, it's all historical recreation and sort of, you know, Greek national fa nationalist fantasy in an attempt to kind of take that kind of, you know, Olympic, all those Olympic myths and, ad, and visions of ancient Greece and, you know, bend them to the cause of mo the modern Greek nation-state. Right. So, but in terms of being a, a kind of sporting event that had a sort of, some kind of spiritual, religious, divine sort of component to it, no, there's nothing. Right. 1896. But there are happens. games beginning to be, for, I mean, as it were, co the codified sports were beginning to, because they couldn't have started Sure, they're codified sports, but they're not in the tradition no, no, of the ancient okay, games. They're going to get two or three not, of them. <laughs> and they're not even codified, you know, right. who knows the rules? Right. I mean, the Greeks never wrote the rules of these things down. But, so, 1896 is going to see the first of the modern Olympics, but it's gathering to itself a number of sports which are being codified oh, sure. in that period. Sure. And how many do they begin with there? Thirteen, I think. Oh, still um, not many. <laughs> <laughs> it's fencing, running, cycling, sailing, swimming, boxing, wrestling, weightlifting. Uh, I can't remember. I think that's most of them. Did they do golf? No. Uh, golf and tennis in 1900, they show up. That's sort of the main. Right. Uh, there's a, there is a football tournament, but um, it's not an official football tournament. So, yeah, those are the sports. I think there's an equestrian event as and, well. Uh, when the Greeks were doing it, they would. Was it played amongst city states? Uh, no, I mean people the, came. You know, you represented your state, but the idea that there would be sort of Team Sparta. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, this is an anachronism. You know, people showed up of their own accord. People had patrons. Some people were obsessives. I mean, again, we don't really know because I think you know, amongst the kind of Greek male athletic elite, these things would have been so sort of obvious and known that you know you don't bother to write it down but sort of organised teams on city-state basis no. no no none of that at all there's nothing in the records and in 1896 that. how quickly was it formed as a competition between nations well there's a kind of ambiguity from the very beginning I would say because on the one hand you know pretty much everyone who shows up who's not Greek is coming there actually as a kind of independent rich rich man you know, it's all graduates from Harvard and Princeton and various kind of, you know, lords who, you know, like to fence on the side. I mean, it's those kinds of characters, you know, because there's no, there's really no money in the Olympics at this point. I mean, it barely manages, you know, to get off the ground. And there's certainly no money to pay for anyone to come from anywhere else. So, you know, like the two American guys who win the pistol shooting competitions are brothers from Harvard, you know, who pay their own way and in fact bring their own guns and their own ammunition. Um, so the extent to which people are representing, you know, uh, official codified national teams, no. I think there is a sense, certainly for the Americans, that they're there to show what America can do and show the Europeans what they're all about. I think for the Greeks, I mean, clearly it is an exercise in Greek political nationalism right. and the fact that, you know, 
um, that the royal family have been so closely aligned to it is an attempt by what is essentially a Germanic um, royal family to win a bit of Greek kudos. Um, so there's that kind of nationalist politics uh, going on. And I think, you know, for the Greeks in Athens, because let's remember, you know, like, what is Greece in 1896 beyond Athens? News is not travelling fast, let's mm. put it. The imagine, it's trouble, it's difficult to be an imagined community because, like, how do you get any news out anywhere? Mm. So Greece is still, you know. But that said, you know, there's a certain amount of nationalist celebration around the Greek victories, and particularly the guy wins the marathon. And so but it's, gonna, it's not going to take very long before national competition becomes absolutely central in some yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, by 1900, no, by 1908, that's really come to the fore, I would say. 10 years. Uh, it doesn't take, doesn't take very long. 1900 is too kind of chaotic. The Olympics of 1900. Where were they? Well, sort of notionally in Paris, but they are tied to the, um, the World's Fair or the right. Universal Exhibition. Yeah. And the, basically the guys running, uh, and it is guys who are running the, um, the World's Fair, are not really very interested and it becomes a kind of total subsidiary it's spread out over five months many of the competitors only discover that they've won an Olympic gold medal sort of a decade later when the IOC informs them and people actually showed up for competitions you know it's like the football competition is actually between two teams from the British Embassy and the woman who wins the first gold medal in women's golf um, is basically an itinerant American artist who hears there's a golfing competition going on in the Bois de Boulogne and nips off down the road with her golf clubs, you know, and plays a great round. So it's pretty chaotic. So the idea that you're going to have organised national teams around it, not really happening. And 1904 in St. Louis is um, so few people show up from outside of um, North America. I mean, it's very, very tiny. And you still, delightfully, in St. Louis, you have mixed teams, which, you know, we haven't had for a very long time. But the American fencing team, uh, the foil team, has only two members and you need three. So this Cuban dude is I think like, equestrian stuff is still mixed, isn't it? Uh, in terms of teams? Yeah, so like the GB team can be made, not the horses. I mean, the horses can be mixed as well, but I mean, the <laughs> riders... You can have Princess Anne and somebody else riding. In so area. we're saying mixed here in terms of gender. Yeah. I'm thinking oh, in terms of mixed terms in of nationality. Oh, I see. So the fencing oh. team, you've got two Americans, but then a Cuban is allowed in to kind of fence with them on their team to make okay. up the numbers, and they, they win a medal as the mixed team. So, yeah, no, mixed in terms of gender, only equestrian is okay. these days. Okay. I mean, I think that's all there's ever been. So, we're, we're, we're but 1908, yeah. the London Olympics, is the first time you've got a parade of the, the parade of athletes. And it's the first time, therefore, that you've got flags being carried in front of each nation. And that is made the kind of centrepiece. It's also the first occasion in which people just can't pitch up and say, you know, Here's, I've got my golf clubs, I'm ready to go. Um, You've got, to, you've got to come through your official National Olympic Committee for 1908. Uh, and similarly, it's the first time... And how many were the National Olympic Committees at that time? Well, I think it's about sort of 30 or 40... I think it's probably about 30 nations at 1908. We can, actually. <laughs> this is why we have reference books. So we don't have to remember these things entirely in our heads. You have to remember... 1908, 22 nations. 22. 22 nations. Have you got them listed? No. no. 
Michael need a longer book. Um, but they're overwhelmingly, they're all European, North American, okay. or Latin American. No Africans, no Asians. I don't think it's a Japanese team at 1908. I think they come along a little bit later. Right. Like possibly even, I don't even think, are they at Stockholm? I'm not even sure they're at Stockholm. So it's certainly still at this point following the trajectory of this European paradigm of its own sort of sure. special worth, because this would still be thought of as world games or in some kind of sense. I think they are thinking it's just, you know, what is the world? Yeah, for most exactly. folks in 1908, the world is North America and Western Europe. Well, that's know, why, why Derek talked about world, the worldwideization of the world. It's the becoming worldwide of that world, or the yeah. becoming planetary of a world. But I think that what that world is sort of, I mean, in football anyway, changes when it spreads. Yeah. I don't think it is the same thing. Right. The Olympic movement, hmm, that's, that's, harder, that's harder to say. I mean, it's been so... I think it's in, the Olympic movement has probably... It's really only after the Second World War that that really begins to change. I mean, you don't get an Olympics outside North America... Europe until when will it be? Well, I mean, are we going to count Australia? No. So no. it's 1960. Wow. You know, Tokyo 1960. I mean, it takes even, you know, the World Cup's different because, of course, it's in Latin America from the very off in Uruguay. So it's a different kind of geography. Yeah. Um, so, yes, so nations. Nine, nine, 1908, London. Yes. Um, I don't want to personalise this, but who, who was sort of responsible for this decision that it, they'd have these this much more formal apparatus and, and well, the um, IOC I mean you know which is the IOC is actually about sort of seven people I at mean, this time yeah I mean it's the Baron and three or four people who sort of regularly correspond with him and those guys make the decisions about these things and I think they just found you know partly a victim who's of the success. Baron oh sorry Baron de Coubertin your French um, aristocrat who invents the IOC in 1894 and presides over it until his um, until his death and the founding father of the whole is, thing. Is that the reason why it's always in French? Um, what's always in French? Of the Olympics. Everything's announced in French, everything's written in French. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think from the beginning, I don't know whether it was, I mean, I think they're quite serious like the UN about their kind of multiple official languages mm. and obviously the French got in there early. And the Baron was in the earliest, the same in cycling, you know, which is codified in the international organisation. And similarly, FIFA, because of course FIFA is a French title, not a, not an English title. And it's like, well, you've got to show up if you want to, if you want your language there, you better show up at the start. So I think, yeah, that is a factor, definitely. Uh, um, you know, there's a francophone element for sure to the International Olympic Committee and its doings. Um, so nineteen oh we've got we've got the parade of, of nations. Parade of nations. The parade of nations and in fact one of the controversies, you know, you, it's one of the first major political controversies is the Americans are not happy about they won't dip the flag to the king. Oh. And there's an undercurrent of uh, anti-British imperialism amongst the Irish Americans in the US team, that's a whole issue. Because you know Irish Americans are very big in boxing, for example, and in athletics. And James Sullivan, who is the guy who runs um, the Olympic Committee, is you know has got Irish American sympathies. He's an Irish American with Republican sympathies. So that's a whole kind of you know the politics of nationalism, but also yeah. you know of imperialism, of colonialism. It's all just beginning to kind of heat up in 1908. We haven't got all for a long time, but I'd like if you could to just give us a, a sort of sketch of the relationship between the rise of nationalism particularly in Europe and mm. and it and the way the Olympics gets in 
caught up in that. I mean, clearly 1908, a parade of nations, it's already caught up in it. Yeah, and Bohemia is plying, you know, for membership of the IOC and membership of FIFA in this era. So already kind of cultural and political nationalists are seeing right. international sporting occasions as an opportunity to put your nation out there and international sporting bodies as one of the ways in which you can gain legitimacy for your nationalist project. And who decides that you are a nation then? The IOC. The IOC and FIFA, <laughs> and they told, um, I mean, interestingly, FIFA in particular, I mean, Bohemia gets told to bugger off in both cases, but of course FIFA has allowed the stateless nations of England, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales to be uh, members. Everybody else is one, one state, one team, but it's a special deal for the home nations, but yeah. that's... That was the deal they cut because, you know, the um, home nations have been, as they're endearingly called in football, um, refused the saying, well, you know, you want to create FIFA, make your own arrangements. What do we care? And uh -huh. they were virtually begging them. They said, you really, you really, guys, it's your game, you invented it, you've got to come and join. And uh, the deal was, well, okay, but we're joining as a foursome. And um, and that's that. And nobody, right. nobody quibbled with that. And then that was actually, the deal was sealed after the Second World War, when they rewrote the statutes of FIFA. Um, but the four nations, uh, one state, was uh, was confirmed at that point. Um, okay, so... Yeah, go back to the... Back to the original question. Yeah. Um, when do nations, you know, that, the, the sort of nationalism agenda... Mm. I mean, nationalism politics are clearly... It's huge in 1920 Antwerp, because the issue becomes, you know, who do you invite and who do you not invite? And Antwerp is the kind of booby prize for being the battlefield of the First World War for the Belgians. And they don't invite the Germans, and they don't invite the, you know, the descendant states of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is a whole interesting thing. It's like the Austrians and Hungarians are not invited, but I think actually Romanians are various constituent parts. I think the Yugoslavs uh -huh. actually might be invited as, you know, they're not considered oppressors of, from the First World War. Um, you know, Berlin 36 is really the moment, obviously, where, you know, the Olympics get so explicitly tied to a sort of super-nationalist, politically orchestrated project. Mm. You know, whereas something like LA 32, Americanism or America is much more in the background, and that's much more, you know, hooray for Hollywood and LA real estate and come and have a nice time in the sunshine um, is much more the agenda What, what did the... What did the the Nazis Cold War, do in, what Sorry. did the Nazis do in thirty six? I mean, we've I've they seen put on great, a show, right? That's what they did. The bubble they put on a show. I mean, you've got to check the Olympics. It's a shambolically pathetic event when you actually really it's like it's a Jimmy Carter before <laughs> nineteen thirty six. I mean, LA thirty two. You know, showbiz is brought to the affair and the set is dressed a little bit and they kind of begin that. But you know, actually to put on the show to actually turn you know. Because all of these claims that the Olympics is, you know, uh, a global ritual, um, a representation of the wider humanity, something with a kind of almost divine quality to it, mm. you know, they've got the flag, they've got the flame, all this stuff has been accumulating, but actually someone's got to put it on the show, which means you've really got to put some money up, and then you've really got to, you know, got to design the set, you've got to dress the city, you've got to make the thing happen, you've got to have your Danny Boyle, and no one's done that. And that's what they do, yeah. and they film it, you know, yeah. and they put Riefenstahl on the case, and they film it, and they let the world know about it. So that's and the, that's is that have been absolutely 
absolutely lasting legacy, although there was obviously the sort of its own national supremacist vision on view. Um, did that idea of the putting on the show is that where that sort of totally that everybody's been taking, everybody since everybody everything everyone took not everyone's been taking notes ever since mm. I mean you know we people may not like the politics but they knew how to put on you know and a show that was consciously designed for an audiovisual age mm. I mean that's the other thing with Berlin it's the first Olympics that's televised albeit to closed circuit television to sort of forty rooms around Berlin but they're on it. And the actual, you know, the way that the opening and closing ceremonies are designed, the way that Hitler's drive from the from you know the chancellery to the stadium on the day of the opening of the games, it's all designed with the film in mind, and with eventually with television. And of course, that's what you know. The Olympics, above all, is a is is a telly event. I and mean, that's how most people, yeah. you know, you think about the opening ceremony, you know, in Beijing. I mean. We all watched digitally enhanced fireworks. We didn't really see the fireworks. We saw digital, you know, and they mind because it's not for the people in the stadium. It's for the, the, the television audience. And I think, so Berlin, and Berlin is ambitious. I mean, again, you may, may you know, I'm not, I'm not for genocide and, uh, and mad nationalist politics, but man, they knew what they were doing. They knew how to put that show on the, the flags. You know, that's such a strong image, those gigantic swastikas, you know, hanging in the streets of Berlin. And, you know, the, they invent the torch run. You know, they invent the torch parade. I mean, it's a complete fantasy. There are no torches at the age of the Olympics. You know, like I say, there might be a bit of flame, but, you know, they're all completely invented. And as we know, I mean, in the context of this conversation, you know, it's like ancient Greece, ancient Sparta, modern Germany, you know, one right, right. thing, yeah, yeah. let's connect them. Yeah. I always think, I don't know whether to laugh or cry when watching Riefenstahl's Olympia, but at the beginning there's the whole scene where the Olympic torch is lit and the runners, you know, run to, um, to Berlin and they show this map of Europe through all the cities and it is the invasion of Europe but just in reverse. It's kind of <laughs> Athens, Sofia, Belgrade, Prague, Vienna, Berlin. I mean, let, let me use that at that point that this was also a map of cities to talk about something else that goes inside the warp and weft of nationalism in yeah. the Olympics, which is the fact that the host is a city, yeah. not a nation. Yeah. And how do, how how does how did, why is that? Why is it not given this nationalistic architecture that it mm. it mm. came to have? Uh, what what's the significance of the the city as host? Um, <clears throat> it sort of depends. I mean, early on, you know, the IOC was always dealing with national governments, and it's actually only. I mean, that's probably one of the contributions of LA thirty two is that it is consciously an urban project led by an urban rather than a national elite. I mean, the people running, you know the 1920s or the 1924 games, it's not particularly a Parisian elite with a Parisian project running the Parisian games, it's a French elite uh, at a national level that just locates it in. So the idea that the city is something, you know, like a sort of separate actor in, in, in the process only really comes into being with LA32 uh, because the whole thing is just is conceived by, you know, an alliance of um, Hollywood um, real estate interests and all of the kind of boosters that LA is famous for. Um, and does the city 
provide a different um, narrative to the self-understanding of the Olympics? Sometimes. Or it depends how good the city is at kind of and how much importance that sort of takes. So in the case of, you know, Atlanta 96, for example, um, you know, the, the city element, certainly for the organisers, you know, and in America it was very much thought about as, you know, this is about Atlanta's chance to show what the New South is about, mm -hmm. for example. And certainly in this country, you know, go to Bristol, go to Manchester, go to Liverpool, nobody thinks this is Britain's Games. Nobody. But it's not, it's the London yeah, Games. Exactly. I mean, the bits will it's go the, on. But nobody, nobody thinks it's their games outside of London. And people, I, you know, I mean, I think that's... But are they wrong to think that if the games are given to a city, not No, they're to a not. Nation? I mean, you know, well, yes and no. It's like, but who's paying up? Uh -huh. You know, if London was paying up for it all by itself, <laughs> but once again, London's not paying up for what London gets, it's like an incubus on the rest of the country. <coughs> and, um, you know, they're right. It isn't the country's games. You know, they, we're all getting a little bit of the cultural Olympiad, you know, and the Kenyans are staying in Bristol, which is great. Bless the Kenyans, I love them. But it doesn't really make you feel like Bristol's an Olympic city. Um, I mean, Barcelona is the other. That's the moment, you know, part of the whole thing which drives the bidding, I think, as well, is the idea that the Olympics is the springboard for urban redevelopment. Um, mm. And while there is a certain amount of that going on, before 1992 uh, and the Barcelona Olympics. You know, Munich is quite reshaped by 72 and Mexico City is reshaped by 68. Really, Barcelona, I think, puts that right out in the kind of public consciousness about what the Olympics is. And it is an urban, a city-based event that transforms that city and that city shows itself, not just the country as a whole. Yeah. And, you know, that's sort of doubly so in the case of Spain, given the kind of... Catalan nationalist politics and all of that going on. I was sort of thinking that there might be a route for thinking of uh, something I'd like to come back to later though of a, a sort of cosmopolitan character to the games that make through its being a relationship of cities but it, it, I think I think the national narrative is very uh, robust. Yeah, it's a medal <laughs> table. I mean yeah. that's the, you know, the bottom <laughs> line is that even the IOC has given up on that. You know, For a long time the IOC refused to publish medal tables actively discouraged them, used to write to editors of newspapers saying, please don't write, publish medals. Can you imagine writing to the, you know, the American tabloid press, oh, please, please don't publish medal tables. It's terribly nationalistic, not in keeping with the cosmopolitanism of right. them. And, you know, they've given up. So they've, you know, okay. they've given up on that. Well, I want to ask you some questions about this, which is about the, um, the relationship, perhaps, of the spectators and viewers, mm. as you say, it's a TV event, to, to what's going on. And I want to borrow an image from uh, the philosopher Nietzsche to mm -hmm. explore this distinction. Because in, in a book where he's talking about national feeling and national sentiment, and he's generally speaking really hostile to it, mm -hmm. uh, he talks of some people, and he says, like myself, uh, who allow themselves, this is his words, allow themselves a few hours when we permit ourselves a warm-hearted patriotism, hours of national ebullition, of patriotic palpitations, and floods of various outmoded feelings. And he, he, uh, he says of people like him, he, he gets over this after a few hours, it's just a little moment in his day, yep. as it were, and uh, he says others would need half a century <laughs> to overcome yeah. such atavistic attacks of patriotism and cleaving to one's native soil. 
So for some of them, we've got a few hours, and then it's over. For others, it, it takes half a year or even half a life. And he talks about this distinction between these different kinds of um, dealings with these uh, outmoded feelings uh, in terms of um, difference of degree according to the speed and power with which you can digest it, as it were, and get over it, a, metabol a sort of mm -hmm. national metabolism. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you here about your view of us as viewers of the Olympics. Um, if we find ourselves celebrating, for example, in my case, a British success, um, is there a distinction, more than just a difference of degree, between my moment of national pride or whatever mm. it is, you know, backing the, the British runner mm. or, or athlete, um, and somebody who is a proper nationalist, you know, whose whole life is, is wedded to the national idea. Mm. Am I just like a kind of little shriveled version of that? Or is there, is there yeah, a just the mellow end of the spectrum? You think it's I don't a spectrum think it's a case. Of, I think yeah. it's a spectrum rather than a kind of either. Or. I also think most of the time the Olympics, these things don't last very long because I just think with individuals it just doesn't work the way the same as teams. I mean, you know, obviously there are teams at the Olympics, and it's often the team events. Which team Britain, it's called though, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, like. When the end of, because in the end nobody's really supporting Team GB as a kind of concept. I mean, it's really? such an unspeakable Team GB. I hate. It. I know, but they do. To, and, and people in the in the arena will say, you know, we're all supporting the other athletes from Team GB. Yeah, there's a certain amount of that, but it's not like in the kind of like wider out there in the wider culture. You know, it's only really when teams take the field that these things really hang around rather than individuals, right. I think. I mean, for example, you know, Americans, okay? I mean, Americans won a lot of gold medals, but when it comes to kind of, you know, events that the American body politic is still metabolizing for its <laughs> nationalism, right? Carl Lewis winning four gold medals is not figuring, right? Greg Luganis winning 17 billion medals in the diving, right, is not metabolizing, right? But the American basketball team or the ice hockey team that beat the Soviets, right, when they were all amateurs, that is still metabolizing. Okay, but so. that, 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 I mean, America's a good example here because I'm my own sense of this is that when the Olympics are on in anywhere in the world, yeah. uh, the BBC has tended to show showcase, you might say, the, the, the British runners and, sure. and athletes, but you get to see quite a lot. Yeah. In fact, they'll give you a rundown of the, the events today, but my understanding is that in America, more and more, they basically only show the Americans. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, th that, that seems to me a huge cultural, you know, whether... whether I mean, I suppose what I really want to know is should, how bad should I feel about supporting a British success? <laughs> I don't think you should feel bad at all, right. is, my, is my thing. I think we should feel bad that we didn't punt up any money for, um, you know, sports facilities for youth in East London. I think we should feel bad that we've allowed ourselves to be duped by our elites again with a really crap regeneration project, which could have been quite good. Mm. I think we should feel bad that the architectural legacy of the Olympics is going to be a Westfield shopping centre, you know. And I say that saying, you know, actually that is the correct legacy. 
because what has this country been doing for the last 20 years but spunking up money on our credit cards buying shit in Westfield you know shopping centres so that's it that's been Britain in the last 20 years but that's not quite the intention right. now, I think uh, that we should feel yeah. well about so okay so I'm allowed a certain amount of pleasure at the British success but I also get a certain amount of pleasure from Course, supreme yeah. achievements, right? So watching Usain Bolt slowing down in the 100 metres and still winning Absolutely. by, by And don't you feel cool for the whole of Jamaica? Oh yeah, I do. It's not just no. about Usain Bolt, it's about yeah. saying, yeah, we love Jamaica. Uh -huh. Bless okay. Jamaica. Yeah. And that's, I get into all of that side of it right. in the Olympics. You know, all the kind of weird countries that you've got, you know. I mean, now, I what's the it. relationship? I've been taking a lot of pleasure from Greece, yeah. for example, at the Euros. Yeah. You know, I've been loving it that Greece managed to do do so well, and you know, we might talk about Germany in the last minutes. So okay. we'll hold that. And <laughs> <laughs> um, is there a difference, really, between the pleasure I'm getting at watching the Brit success and the pleasure I'm getting at watching anyone from anywhere do something wonderful? That's a very individual experiential is it, is moment, it? I reckon. I don't know. I mean, these things are structured, though, aren't they? Like the British one, whether I like it or not, I'm. I, I mean, I'm deeply contingently British, and, yep. and so. Do you not find it's intensely flecked by questions of class, though, and slightly disposition towards the person? I think there's more. You see, there's more than just nationalism. Yeah. Nationalism going on. Right. There. I mean, I when, we, when we saw Olga Corbett do it, we've all held yeah, our yeah, breath. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the and ten. Thought, oh my God, yeah. this is incredible. Yeah. That a human being could actually do. So the, I mean, this is in a way. Yes. But we weren't thinking, oh, she's Russian. The Cold War's on. We can't like her. Blah blah blah. We weren't thinking that, were we? Well, I sincerely hope not. I mean, I'm sure a few nutters were actually. But <laughs> yeah, probably. There are yeah. some sort of supra nationalist characters around, but generally not. But that's good. That's I mean, if we, good, if that seems to me a very good thing. Yeah. If we follow Nietzsche talking about these outmoded feelings of atavism, right. right, and he seems to be thinking, and he's, you know, always, it's only a, a European context he talks sure. about it, but he thinks that there's, as it were, this, what we might call a cosmopolitan trajectory inside this globalisation. Where uh, out these feelings will genuinely become outmoded, and that what will more and more take delight in would be simply the excellence, yeah. and less and less the attachment. Well, I think it's excellence, also difference. Yeah. I mean, I think it is. You know, just getting into things that you know, people people coming out of places that do these things differently that have. And part of the pleasure with Usain Bolt is not merely that he's just elegant or brilliant or a sort of superhuman it's also that he has a distinctively Jamaican quality to him yeah do you know what I mean I mean that's you know and that's partly the chicken nuggets thing and man how many other people are doing dancehall reggae moves like him when they win uh, an event and there's something to you know his whole kind of body language and body culture that is it's got to be distinctively Jamaican so right. I think we are so you have to hold on to that local still in a cosmopolitan yeah, so context so I think you can be yeah. cosmopolitan but you can also you know get into the fact that Jamaica's different and brings something different because to the table in, in the book you talk about uh, somebody watching whose priorities might be twisted by patriotism and that sounded to me what like, did I write that? Yeah, I don't know it's page 39 did you write page 39? I'm going to blame Johnny <laughs> I, I have to say twisted is not I'm going to do you know what I'm going to pass that one on Johnny alright but okay. yes I, I twisted by patriotism well, what, tell me more what did we no, say? no no I just quoted that bit ok right. <laughs> I might well, let, let, me, let me pick up on because I'm 
running out of time, but I want to pick up on something else you've just said, which is about Usain Bolt, which is that it's not only the superhuman achievement. And this is um, something that came up, I saw on a, on a website for a call for papers to a, an academic conference this year. Now, academic conferences are really, really dreadful things, as you know, so we mustn't take it too seriously. But there was this enormous anxiety being expressed about the sort of social politics of elite sports. Right. Uh, based on, presumably, primarily its inegalitarian ethos, because mm. some people are really much better sure. than others. And, the, and so you, there's this gulf between the participants that we see there and any other kind of participants, and even more between participants and spectators right. also we could they you could have concerns about the some kind of commodification of this high quality body sure. through the way the olympics is caught up in a commercial sure. a a activity and so on so you have at one end perhaps a sport for all ethos yeah. and at another end superhuman enhanced mm -hmm. uh, excellence and uh, of course, then there's a question of drugs, which we should probably touch on. But just in terms of this drive for ever more excellent athletes, is this? Mm. Is it? Do you do you see this as a sort of at least ambiguous, problematically ambiguous social um, development? No one would ever say this of university professors, of course. That the drive for excellence in universities was a bad thing and discouraging all the people lower down yeah. the educational scale or in other parts of the system. I mean, I just sort of think, you know, no, why would we say that of any other field? Or like, you know, people must make poorer films and crap on television because it's really undermining everybody else in the audiovisual industry. <laughs> <laughs> so I slightly... Yeah. Why does sport? I don't know. Anyway, get treated. It was treated. just a call for papers. But do you see? I sort of. So I'm slightly. I mean, I. I think there are problems with elite yeah. sport. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying it's a sort of unambiguously good thing. And I think for a lot of the people who participate in it, it's a really. You know, messes up your head and your body, and you live a really odd life. And you know, actually, I find a lot of the stories about you know elite athletes actually to be slightly heartbreaking and I just think slightly dysfunctional characters you yeah. know rather than you know they're always going role models I just yeah. think nah these other people aren't role models right you know but that is that idea of this sort of increasing distance between their humanity and ours <laughs> yeah I mean there is you know um I mean, I'm a lover of kind of, you know, I like a little bit of awe in my life. I did generally, when I've just been teaching in the United States, and I had to ban the word awesome from my class, <laughs> because I said, you know, the Lord in his majesty is awesome, but, you know, this paper or that article is not awesome. So please only use it in the correct... But I think there is a place for awe in human life, right. actually. And I think, you know, let's go back to Usain Bolt. I mean, if that isn't awesome, yeah. I sort of slightly don't know what is. So I think it has... That, for me, is part of the pleasure and the function and the purpose of it. OK, let's, let's drive this one home. He was enhanced by chicken nuggets. Absolutely. Uh, what if he was enhanced by more carefully developed pharmaceuticals? Actually, it is a pretty much a pharmaceutical chicken for pharmaceuticals. But um, <laughs> chicken nuggets. No, but not uh, drugs. Um, they had steroids in at one point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I worry first and foremost, I think the first issue has just got to be about athletes and their health. Yeah. So that's really what concerns, that's the thing that really concerns me because I just do think, 
it's one of those situations where if you don't regulate, you know, people just will take shit and they will kill themselves and they will die early. Mm. And I don't want that to happen, you know, for mine or anyone. You know, also okay. as it might. I'm going to make the drugs safe. Can, okay, well, if the drugs are safe, let's say in a hypothetical yeah, world, yeah, yeah. then I think you have two classes of event. Right. You have the pharmaceutically enhanced, and you have the organic kind of knitted yogurt. <laughs> you can go. You can go to Tesco's, you know, or you can go to the whole food. Do you know what though? The trouble is that if if the if the chemically enhanced athletes are <coughs> progressively far more superior and extraordinary and awesome than any Chicken McNugget enhanced athlete, the television viewing is going to fall away from the organic yoghurt one and all the, all the money will go to the But that's fine, but fine. that's fine it's in fine. the sense it's that, safe. but it's a, it, in a fantasy world, but as we know, actually organic whole food is generally healthier yeah. than the chemically enhanced. That's happened in bodybuilding, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Bodybuilding now is all about steroids, and there are accepted bodybuilding Steroids are accepted, yeah. right. and they're the ones that get the money. And yeah. the natural bodybuilding um, competitions don't. You see, but tastes make world change. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, you know, I find all bodybuilders so repulsive and disgusting. <laughs> it really actually does make me slightly ill. And the thought of the steroid, oh, and all the veins, and oh, <laughs> no, it's just like, that can't be good. But at the, um, moment, they, um, at the moment, in this non fantasy world, they talk about uh, there's an oath. That is given by one person on behalf there of all is. that they will uh, now rather it must have been written by an American I think it's sport without doping or drugs they oh it's it. written by committee the old oath yeah. back in the 20s the first oath was given in 1920 and it had I mean it's pretty old school but it had a kind of sort of literary kind of rhythm to yeah. it and now we just have honestly it might as well be point uh, one three, <laughs> you know <laughs> subsection four bundle four tab A um, <laughs> is slightly the feel of it yes they promise not to take drugs and be nice people yeah uh, and do you think there will be people found out in London this year? And animals, I suspect, as well. I mean, at the last Olympics, oh, yeah, yeah. horses, horses got busted. Yeah, yeah. I think probably there will. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I can't see any reason. We haven't reached the point where the testing regime is so good and so fearsome and national committees are so on the case that the balance of you know costs and benefits of trying to beat the system as such that no one will try it. So I'm expecting a few people to get busted for sure. Okay, I've got two more questions here. I'm going to ask just one of them okay. and I'll save the other one for later. Um, I want to go back for, to football, which is your other interest, just, just very briefly because of last night, which I'm still suffering from simply from abusing my body actually. Um, <laughs> <coughs> why are England struggling in international football? <laughs> That's question A, yeah. and B is which style of excellence do you pr do you prefer, Spanish or German? Um, is that in football or cooking? No, football, football. Um, why are England? I mean, England are about where they should be. I don't think they underperformed or overperformed. They're probably about fifth in Europe. That seems about right. Uh, technique, you know, can't keep hold of the ball. Yeah. can't keep hold of the ball can't complete passes what do you expect is going to happen you know right. and then you're going to lose the ball against good players and then you can't get it back and then you get tired and you run around and they keep the ball and that just it was sort of starkly obvious yeah. it seemed to me you know Ashley Young blesses Cotton Sox 48% pass completion rate in Euro 2012 and he's you know that's the cream of the crop um, 
it's not it just you just yeah. if you don't hold the ball you won't you will eventually get found out there's there's a game that one, one of my children play which is on the xbox of a sort of football international football thing and and uh, on computer games they never miscontrol the ball on the first touch so when you see passes yeah. being made they go it's locked onto them yeah. now so they run yeah. around and I thought on the, on the train this morning thought, that's how Spain are playing they're just playing an Xbox game aren't they Where I'm mixed with Spain actually on the Spain German thing yeah. I mean, hard as it is to love the Bosch I think one's got to um, because Spain the slightly kind of suffocating and killing teams with sort of boredom mm. in a way I mean it is really classy and mm. you know power to them and it is but I do think it is just slightly we are going to drive you insane <laughs> you're eventually going to leave a hole and then we're going to do you and if we've got to wait you know like they did at the World Cup yeah. 117 minutes you know they will and you know it is amazing and when it's good it's really it is fantastic and it is brilliant to see players with the confidence that you know people want the ball even when they've got somebody marking them people still want the ball past them you've got to love that but you know football I think should be a more three-dimensional game in a way I like it a bit more sort of end-to-end yeah. and the Germans are sort of providing that yeah. so I'm learning to love the Germans right um, Matt, Matt Taylor on on, uh, on the telly the other night was asked to, to sum up at the end after a German victory and said you know what do you think of the Germans he said I think they're really very good and just a little bit frightening. <laughs> I think the other thing to remember with like Germany, football is the groovy side of Germany. Right. You know, football is the place where God Germany God. has <laughs> let its hair down. The 2006 World Cup, you know, it's you know, it was a great big love parade and Germany sort of, you know, felt better about its own nationalism, you know, and I walked through Hamburg and saw, you know, white German mothers, you know, with a Ghanaian flag and a German flag on the back of the stroller. And I've never seen that kind of stuff in Germany. So football has allowed Germany to kind of, you know, loosen up. And I think what a fantastic thing for Germany, what a fantastic thing for the rest of us. So I'm particularly supportive. You know, it's also, you know, the German social model in football, gotta love it. Mm. You know, you can't own a football club in Germany like you can here. There are proper protection, proper limitations all the private sector could do. You have safe standing, you have decently priced seats, but the deal, you know, and they sing, and you know, like the English well it's important they sing yeah. and they like dodgy meat products and beer so <laughs> that's a pretty pretty good the lost world of British social democracy eh? yeah. um, so I feel warm and loving as yeah. one can be right. towards German and German football I'm a, I'm a fan although a little bit frightening yeah for sure you know a little bit frightening yeah okay well I've taken up too much time so let's give other people an opportunity who haven't heard a say to participate. So any questions, contributions? Yeah, please. Um, when did the Winter Olympics start and why? The Winter Olympics started in 1924 um, and prior Olympics had had what we would now consider to be Winter Olympic sports played in them. So there was an ice hockey competition at the Summer Olympics in 1920 um, in Antwerp. And it was recognised, you know, you've got the scandal, you've, it's a mixture of things, it's a recognition that you can't really do, you know, it doesn't work in a lot of places, you know, to do those sports together. 
and you've got mm, international sporting federations emerging around those sports because you need an international sporting federation and a set of rules before you can go to the Olympics. Do you know what I mean? So those sort of had to form and be created in the first place. And the Scandinavians uh, and the Central Europeans come to have more power within the International Olympic Committee. And they're the people who are really into it. I mean, the Norwegians in particular are sort of pressing and campaigning, you know, because their whole thing is cross-country skiing. And like, you've got to do, you can't do that at the summer games with the best one in the world. So it's a mixture of, it's a mixture of things. Plus there was a sort of recognition and partly what, you know, people were looking at it and going, this is good for business. This is if you're in the kind of tourism, winter sports business, you know, I mean, in most of the Winter Olympics, it gets held in resorts, right? And they get a lovely upgrade and everyone, you know, that's part of the appeal. So that's how that comes about. Okay, one over <coughs> We see the rules of sports and the way sports are conducted changing over the years and over the decades, but football seems very conservative and it doesn't mm. seem to change and it's particularly evident with Goal detection technology mm -hmm. and all kind. Sure. Is there, a, is there a reason for that? I think it's partly serendipity in the sense that they just sort of slightly got it right first time around. I mean, you know, more by good luck than good judgment. I mean, there has been a certain amount of change in terms of the offside rules mm -hmm. and the rules of substitution. I mean, offside originally there was no offside, then it was three, then it was two people between, you know, the ball and, you know, the pass and the, the goal line. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's probably it's a bit like baseball, really. I mean, baseball's pretty much as it was, you know, in 18... When is the first pro stuff? Sort of the 1870s. Baseball's really not changed. I mean, there's a lot of obsessive minutiae of refinement, but basically the game is the same as it was in the 1870s. Didn't, um, didn't Stephen Jay Gould say, though, that a certain score average became possible at a certain point and then they changed the distance between the pitcher and the plate and, and that there have been changes that have tried to rebalance the attack and defence right. and so the uh, mound in the 1960s pitchers got real good uh, and scores were going down and down right. and so they tried to rebalance the game um, by lowering the pitcher's mound uh, and giving them less of an advantage. But, you know, it's been the other way as well. In the 1920s, you know, nobody used to hit home runs until Babe Ruth arrived. Everybody thought the only way in baseball to kind of, you know, score runs was to do it, you know, incrementally. You know, you get to a base, you push the next person around, and you don't take the risk of swinging big for a mm. home run. And then Babe Ruth came along and just changed everything, and suddenly the atmosphere of scoring kind of went through the roof. So, um, but yes, the rules haven't changed very much in either of them. Uh, I think a poly is just, you know, it's sort of like luck, really. It just sort of slightly got it right first time around. So they got the rules right on football, but they also seem reluctant to adopt technologies, for instance. To Good. Goals as Good. Goals I mean, why is that? Why is that good? Because what, are you, what is this? Is this the theory of justice? Is this rule? Are we, are we reenacting John rules? This is about entertainment and drama. I mean, who cares? Justice and rules and is it a goal or not? It's like, is it a good story? That's what matters with football. It's not about the winning and the losing. It's not about the justice. It's, is it a good story? That's the point of it. It's narrative pleasure. It's about, you know, it's about drama. It's about entertainment. You know, it's about art, 
Nobody goes around the National Gallery going, do you know what? If they'd have had a machine, he'd have got the perspective a bit better on that project. <laughs> that, that Pablo fucking Picasso, he needs a machine to sort out the perspective. It's like, no, that's not what it's about. There's an issue. Not for me, anyway. <laughs> But does the, the, you know, good, so then they disagree even better. So referees, you know, that's the story. I love it. Look, put it this way, right? I'm at Bloemfontein, okay, for my sins, watching England, Germany, and South Africa. Two and a half thousand kilometer round trip I did for that, for my sins. And when the Frank Lampard goal is disallowed, what do all the Germans around me do? They're all going, 1966, you know. It's like brilliant. Over three generations and 40 years, a whole kind of narrative is created between two football cultures. How brilliant. What, that's that? It's better to have some, somebody in a box go, you know, goal, no goal. What kind of story is that? That sucks as a story. You know, that's storytelling by technocrats and bureaucrats. You know, but storytelling is told by artists. That's what, I don't know, that's what, that's what I'm in. That's very nice. There's a case that I've been looking at recently regarding the unintended consequences of rule changing in, right. the, in the Grand National, which yeah. um, there are a lot of horses when it became sort of super popular and very televised and good TV, so you could yeah. see everything. Dead horses was not good copy, Bad. right? Bad. And so they reduced the, le the height of the fences, right. they changed the drops so it was slightly yeah. um, less likely that you'd die. Uh, but the consequence of doing those changes meant that much fitter horses could run in the national. And so right. now you have a field, instead of like there's a donkey at the end, well, nearly all of them could win it. <laughs> and, okay. so, and so you have the unintended consequence of these, of 40 runners at a, at a fence and, and things like this, and so that at the same time, and so you had the deaths are coming up again, okay. you know. So, uh, so, and that was an attempt to sort of technically yeah. resolve a problem, but which, which you have unintended consequences. And I think your argument here is that what you don't want is the unintended consequence of losing a narrative. That's, that's for me, you know, I like a bit of injustice. Right. I mean, not in the world, but you know, like in the fantasy world of the football of the football pitch. Because the flip side of that is that football also makes it possible for the little people occasionally to win. You know, in a way that you don't get in a lot of other sports. I mean, really, manifestly, the worst side can win in football. Greece, two thousand and four. You know, bless it. How cool was that? I mean, that's one of the greatest stories in football ever. And. Um, I just, I'm not saying that, you know, goal line technology would have changed that, but I think the kind of, the level of uncertainty that you get in football makes those sort of turnovers possible. And for me, that's the kind of, you know, it keeps me thinking that Bristol Rovers still could win the FA Cup. <laughs> <laughs> Up at the back there, yeah. What's the, uh, what's the deal with, um, I guess, projecting the brand or so forth, with Greenwich, they basically fenced off all of Greenwich for, for the London and they also covered the fences. You couldn't see from any vantage point mm. anywhere. Mm. They also did the same thing uh, down in Weymouth, mm. sailing, which mm. had a huge area. Mm. So I don't understand, you know, what, what the, is that a texting... Because uh, they're a bunch know, of despicable yeah. control freaks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, really, I mean, without, I'm being slightly flippant, but not very. 
I mean, the, inter the IOC and LOCOGs, and our LOCOG is particularly bad, but, you know, I mean, it was the same deal in Beijing. You know, Athens was another matter, because there's always a way around a fence in, in Athens. Um, but in, uh, you know, it, it's the security, it's the kind of nine post-9-11 security paranoia um, issue going on. And it is the carte blanche that these organisations receive in a kind of legal and bureaucratic framework the way the Olympics is run. And the fact that the press don't get on their case and the politicians don't get on their case in terms of scrutiny. And that we, you know, that it's the combination and then they get away with it. Because, of course, all bureaucrats want to put a fence around everything and hide exactly what. That's the nature of bureaucracies. Isn't it? I mean, not to have a go at anyone individually, but bureaucracies, as Weber, you know, said the structural pressures are is, you know, it's just like we'll keep it very secret, actually, and you can keep your nose out because you don't need to know. Come and see it, you know, without thinking about what the kind of meaning of that is and the consequences of it. I mean, you know, for organisations drenched in PR agents, they're incredibly insensitive to the consequences of these things. Um, so I put it down to too much concentration of power and a kind of bureaucratic dysfunctionality and a total lack of sort of self-reflection which is why the sitcom London 2012 was so fantastic because they captured that so brilliantly you know we're all looking on the outside going you know because it's so obvious it's so you look so ridiculous but inside those organisations, because, you know, it's slightly the Emperor's New Clothes, because there's no one inside, no one is allowed inside those organisations who's actually going to kind of rock the boat. You know, people like that don't get jobs with local. Um, you know, there's no one there to question it. So I think it's a mixture of those things. That sounded like Brussels as well, what you were describing there. Uh, yeah, that. Um, just quickly going back, yeah, the globalisation I think is about being let into the club and the ability to capitalise. Mm. If your sport or your media or anything or business can capitalise, it's let into a global club. Mm. And that's what globalisation really is, it's being let into that club. Mm. Um, just quickly going back, the cultural Olympiad, is there any evidence of a cultural Olympiad from well, there was a certain amount, of, you know, I mean, definitely there would have been poetry reading. I mean, that would have been an element of the sort of festivities, because that's what Greek men did when they got together, apart, you know, from the wine and the whoopee and whatever. There definitely would have been poetry and there would have been ritual and so on. But again, we don't really know, because they didn't bother to write very much of it down. But the cultural Olympiad, I mean, is a kind of, I mean, you know, the, the baron when the Olympics kicked off, always envisaged that it would be an artistic, you know, as well as a sporting enterprise. And his notion of what culture constituted never had the division. I mean, we have a department of cultural media and sport, and I say, isn't sport part of culture? Why is, why, why is it, why are we not having a department of, you know, media, culture, sport, and poetry? Why is poetry not being picked out for sport? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, and we know why, because there are deep historical reasons about the kind of anti-sporting attitudes about elements of the British cultural elite over the last hundred years. But that's a whole 
another debate which we won't get into. Um, so I've completely forgotten what I was talking about Cultural before I went on. Cultural Olympia, thank you so much. Um, so 1912, the Baron gets his way, and there is a cultural series of cultural competitions alongside the athletic competitions at Stockholm, and he wins the poetry prize under an assumed name, no. which was an ode to sport. It's absolutely so bad. It's not true. Is it the only. Is it, it's the, it's what we do have in the book for bad Olympic poetry is we have the Olympic anthem, which you really must check out when it's translated from sort of Greek into sort of sort of English posy, I would describe it as. Anyway, it's unspeakably bad and cheesy. Um, and so from 1912 to 1952, you have, you know, uh, artistic competitions, you know, with gold medals and the works. Oh. I mean, no, they're judged. But there are gold, silver medals, the works. Uh, I don't know if they have the anthems and the flag business, which only comes in in 32, but I think they do, actually. And it becomes a bit of a joke by 48, 52. And people, you know, because all the architecture competition, for example, it's all professional architects. And the IOC are going, hold on, we don't allow professionals, declared professionals of any kind at the Olympics. So how can we maintain this in the artistic competition? So it then became the cultural programme of the Olympics, and it only really, really takes off in 1968 uh, when the Mexicans are in charge. And the Mexican um, Olympic, Mexico Olympics, Mexico City Olympics, are very self-consciously, as you say, about being a member of the club. And that's what Mexico is very, very much doing by um, putting those Olympics on. And they therefore go very big on the cultural programme. It's probably the biggest cultural Olympiad. Maybe 72 was bigger because the Germans just like 17,000 operas are kind of put on in Bavaria over a four-year period. <laughs> opera. It was Anyway, so that's the roots of the cultural Olympiad. It's become... You know, people deal with it in different ways, you know, uh, and spend different amounts of money on it. But those are the root, the roots of it, and there isn't really much evidence for anything in ancient Olympia of uh, anything comparable. Oh, Can you talk about the Paralympics as well? Uh, we were, in the book, yeah. tragically not. I mean, the deal really, to do the Paralympics properly, we would have to have doubled the size of the book, because this is sport by sport, right. right? And, you know, to be perfect, we made a commercial <coughs> decision. I mean, if the Paralympic Committee want me and Johnny to write how to watch the Paralympics in the same voice and style with all the gags and everything, we are ready and willing, but no commercial publisher will pay us to do it. And that's, you know, I'm not, I'm not dissing, I think the Paralympics actually, in many ways, are the most socially progressive and interesting bit of the international Olympic movement. Um, and I just wish we could have done it, but ain't no one paying up. But the shocking thing in, 90, um, in 2004 in America, it wasn't shown, the Paralympics were not shown on any major network. Okay, that's you interesting. Had to pay to see the Paralympics. I can't may imagine many people were paying up. Exactly, that was outrageous. Mm -hmm. uh, it is outrageous. But it's good. I mean, it is, you know, it's, and I think that's, we are, I think London 2012 is going to be mm -hmm. the biggest and the best and the most publicly accessible and popularised Paralympics yet. And I think that is actually going to be the secret success of London 2012, I think it will be the Paralympic Games. Um, perhaps not the opening ceremony, 
Um, that, that, you were talking earlier about the unspeakably bad and cheesy, and the the, the little word that's coming. They're going to have to really go some, though. I mean, honestly, if you want cheese, really. The, 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 um, the philosopher Roger Scruton was asked about this, and he said, "Well, if you've got an event that's constructed around kitsch to start with, don't expect to get anything more than kitsch out of it. So, you know, if if, if, if you're going, oh, it's going to be so dreadful, you should, as it were, lower your expectations yeah. to start with, and just." I think you're really, I mean, I find the opening ceremonies completely hysterical. I mean, yeah. I've watched a lot of opening ceremonies. They're all on YouTube. I mean, and it's amazing what people have done. I mean, for example, in 1972, just on the cheese front, and show, like, we won't be going lower than this. The Munich, the, in Munich, you know, it's... Uh, have you seen, I don't know if you've seen Olympia, but one of the dominant images at the beginning of the opening ceremony in the film is this gigantic iron Teutonic bell with an imperial Germanic eagle on it, calling the youth of the world and tolling. <laughs> and the whole deal with Munich 72 is how can we not be Berlin 1936? So instead of having a Teutonic bell, they have a Dutch glockenspiel. <laughs> And this Dutch glockenspiel, when the parade of nations happens, every country gets its own special tune on the Dutch glockenspiel. But it's all kind of, you know, the Hungarians get my Gypsy Rose Lee done on, on, the, on the glockenspiel. And, um, you know, it's like, they do, you know, it's like the Sheik of Araby is played on the glockenspiel, which is a kind of musical song of the 1930s and 1940s. Um, you know, they're playing that for Arab nations. So we can't go any cheesier than that. I think it's really hard, you know, because on the one hand with the Olympics, it's like, well, we've all paid up. You've kind of got to have something to kick it kick it off. Um, but it is hard. You're slightly on hiding to nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm really, I think it's really interesting they've given it to a slightly edgy film director. You know, that is that at least is an act of one of the few acts of cultural boldness, mm. I would say, on part of London 2012, which has generally played it incredibly safe. You know, everything from the logo to the colours to the kind of iconography that's been used. I actually find it just incredible. We should dreary. say something about the iconography of your book, which is when, do. I, when, when it first uh, appeared on my, in my house, I thought, well, what? on earth haven't they put the Olympic rings on it? Why does it say nothing about the Olympics except in the title? So what's, what are you allowed to use and not allowed to use? Because you get your ass busted, man. Yeah. You put the rings on. Yeah. Um, what can you, what you can't do, there's a list, there are two lists of words and you can't have combinations of them. You can't have the rings and you can't have the rings in a picture either. It's not just that you can't have the rings as a symbol, you can't have a picture of the rings. I mean, unless you've paid up and you've got an agreement. Mm. Um, and we couldn't, London 2012, it's very dodgy putting London 2012 on it as well, which is why it's not out of... But you're allowed to say it? Well, it, you know, this, I mean, this is a matter of law, right? yeah. because part of the deal of when you agree to host Olympics, you have to pass into your own law a piece of intellectual property law mm -hmm. crafted and written by the IOC and its lawyers to protect their brand. Mm. So, in the end, it's a legal thing. And, you know, I mean, the, the story is, you know, the Guildford, the Guildford butcher who put up, you know, five rings of sausages in London 2012 and had the IOC's lawyers around saying, you must take this out of your window. So, I panicked. I mean, I panicked, actually, that these... Um, <coughs> 
that these little fellas here all look too much like the Munich 1972, which is the classic kind of Olympic icon design. And we actually changed them oh. a little bit just to kind of manipulate them so they weren't exact copies. Um, because one one just worries with those guys. So that's it. No rings, no London 2012. There's a whole load of other stuff, and you know, quite a lot of lawyers got paid to ask the question about mm -hmm. it. Because um, yeah, they look after their brand. On the other hand, you have gone through every single sport that we they have every single one, and tell you a little bit about the history and some and detail of how, how, to, watch how to watch it. You know, if you've got five minutes basically in the pub. That, that is what we'll say. We'll go, this is like on the back of an envelope. And all the cheating, obviously. If you've ever read, an I've read quite a few official guides to the Olympics. Oh my, the insomniacs among, among you. Please must get a few copies, because they are dull. Um, so yes, all the fighting, all the cheating, all the odd stuff that's happened, as well as just the kind of understanding of, you know, we may not think water polo is very important, but you tell that to small town Italy and you will get a very different response. And this will tell you why small town Italy has turned water polo into a cult. Good did you view. apply for any tickets? I did. Did you get them? Synchronised swimming. <laughs> Don't laugh, guys. Synchronized swimming. <coughs> that is fantastic. Synchronized swimming, really, I mean, you know, it gets the piss taken out of it because it's a very gendered world, right? And particularly in sports. But man, the, can you imagine you're running five minute mile, basically, mm. but you're doing it with a nose clip on? No goggles, no goggles. How do they do it? And you're not allowed to grimace. You actually lose points for grimacing. Only in a women's dominated sport could this be true. You've got to smile through the shit, right? And can you imagine the core strength? The core strength required to lift yourself out of the water. The other thing is ambition, cultural ambition. In 1996, the French team went to the Atlanta Olympics and they wanted to put on a synchronized swimming uh, for the French team. It was called a water ballet homage to the victims of the Holocaust, in which in black, black swimsuits, they were going to goose step their way to the edge of the pool before dissolving into the water like the victims of Zyklon B. And the American Jewish lobby went so bananas that they were persuaded. I mean, this is some months beforehand because they performed it at the World Championships that year. So, you know, you don't get that in many sports, do you? So synchronized swimming. You know, the Japanese got a silver medal at the 1995 World Championships with a reenactment of the Kobe earthquake. So anything goes. David, you've just hit the finishing line. So uh, we've got to thank you for your insight. I tell you something, your insight and intellect is very good and a little bit scary. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>